Hi, friends. I'm Leona Evans, co-host of the Get Off Your Affirmation podcast. This week, we are proud and thrilled to present to you part two of the radio interview that I conducted with Jack Canfield in 1997. Jack Canfield is the author and creator of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. He is a wonderful speaker, a philosopher, a psychologist, and the particular book that we're working on during this interview is called Heart at Work. It is a book that talks about the passion and the love with which we can approach our work and our life. And in this episode, Jack Canfield talks about Khalil Gibran and Nathaniel Brandon and some of the great thinkers that have talked about the God-given passion that we have within us to create beauty through our work and through our individuality. So please stay tuned and listen to part two of an interview with Jack Canfield. Hi, I'm Leona Evans. We are back with more Positive Living. I'm just delighted to uh, be speaking with our special guest, Jack Canfield, the co-author of Heart at Work. Um, We have been talking for this past half hour about how to bring the goodness that we are, the spirituality that we are into the workplace to recognize that who we are is important, that what we have to offer is important, and to basically celebrate every moment of every day. And I highly recommend this book, Hard at Work. So, Jack, um, we were talking about this one article, Positive Self-Esteem at Work, The Eight Behavioral Keys. And another one of the keys here is nurture potential and recognize desired performance. And so, uh, seeing the gold, she says, uh, develop champions and refuse to see someone as incapable of star performance. Um, Before I ask you to respond, star performance reminds me of another um, mutual friend, uh, I think, that uh, uh, we both know, and that is Hal Milton, um, who was an old teacher of yours. Right. Yeah, he, uh, what what did, uh, it was Rolfing. Yeah, I met Hal, I was, I was, I came to a, Gestalt training, uh, therapy training that I was, oh God, 20 years ago learning to be a Gestalt therapist and Hal was the uh, rolfer that was going to demonstrate what this body work was to people and I was the guinea pig that night. Wow. And he worked <laughs> on me, it, it really opened up my breathing at a deeper level and I went on to you know, get the 10 sessions of rolfing that you get when you do that and uh, Hal became a lifelong friend as a result of that. Yes, and you did the foreword to his book. That's correct. Which I forgot the title of at the moment. Uh, you know, I do too, but it has something to do with Star, because that was the name of his workshop. I know, Star Performance was the name of his workshop. Anyway, right. we've, we've had him on the program. We've also had him out here at Unity, and uh, I was his teacher at Unity Ministerial School. Oh, so I know, I know, and, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm learning so much from, from you and consider you a tremendous teacher in my Thank life. You. So, um, Well, let me, let me refer yeah. back to what you were talking yeah. about. And there's, there's a concept that you can treat a person as they are, or treat a person as you would like them to be. I'll give you a good example. We just uh, published another book called Chicken Soup for the Soul at Work, which is, again, more stories in the workplace about people who are living from this new paradigm of love and courage and compassion. And uh, Tom Peters, a great uh, kind of guru of the management world, talked about a company in which the manager had to come in really early in the morning, like around 6 o'clock, and stay till almost uh, midnight, in order to uh, lock everything up and keep everything safe and all the different trucks that would come in and out in the shifts. And what he did was one day he simply said, you know, I'm just, I can't keep doing this. I'm working too hard. 
I'm going to give each of you a key to get in here, and when you get here, you can unlock it and do what you need to do, and when you leave, lock it. And all these truck drivers were, like, just totally astounded. They said, you mean you trust us that much? And he said, of course I do. And he said their behavior actually raised, their level of trustworthiness increased because they were trusted as opposed to treating them like you can't trust them. People will live up to however you treat them. So I think that what we're saying here is you always act as if inside every person there is a competent, caring, uh, skillful being that can come forward if you treat them with respect and you expect them to do well. So high expectations and respect. We always say expect and respect, and you'll get what you want, as opposed to assuming people aren't going to measure up and then treating them like babies, then in fact they'll act like babies. I, I think that's a very, very important point. Um, there's something here that I'd like to ask you to comment on, sure. that we are as frightened of our virtues as we are of our shortcomings. I've, I've heard this a lot, and sometimes I think I know what it means, and a lot of times I don't, but why is there something called a fear of success? I, I understand very well why there's a fear of failure, but why a fear of success, and, and we long for it so well, I think there are, there are numerous causes. I mean, it would probably take a whole show to un- unpack that one. But just to give you one example, uh, when I was playing football, my dad, uh, this was in high school, my dad would come out, and he was, you know, like maybe 37 at the time, and he would throw the football really hard. I was an end, an all-state end, and he would try to get me to drop it. And, and he would keep saying things like, wow, they're still zipping this old arm and all that. And it was like he didn't want me to be better than him. There was almost a sense that even though I was his son, and he wanted me to achieve, there was a part of him that if I did better was going to make him feel worse. And that became a block for me when I started making money. It was like there was this unwritten rule, you don't make more money than your father makes. Hmm. And, uh, you know, right now I make a considerably amount uh, more than my father makes. But it, it, there was a, a stage I had to go through. I think there's another thing that friends, you'll lose your friends. There's an old thing in the union world. When I, I grew up in that world as well. Uh, for a number of summers I worked in a, in a factory. And uh, there was this whole sense of, like, when someone would make it up to management, there would be this constant trying to bring them back down. Oh, you think you're so smart. Now you have a white shirt and a tie on. And, mm-hmm. and uh, don't forget where you came from. And it's like if you succeed, you remind me of my own mediocrity. And I don't want you to do that. And I don't, so I'm going to kind of hold you hostage to abandonment and rejection if you um, uh, succeed. And I think that's some of the underlying reason for that. Yes, those are very good points. Uh, something happened the other night, uh, Saturday night, uh, during the uh, ice skating professional competitions that were on TV, uh, and, and I really, really took it to heart and, and spoke a bit about it on Sunday morning. It was Brian Boitano. Are you familiar with him? He's I am. Just He's amazing. Amazing, I know. But um, So he did two competitions. One was technical, one was artistic. And in the technical competition, he fell a couple of times and made some mistakes and the reporter was right in his face a second after he got off the ice saying wow how come you didn't do it or something you know uh equally as as tactless uh, you know of course she was totally unconscious but she really wanted to know and he said something to the effect of it is so hard to have those kind of expectations it is just so hard to live up to that perfection time after time after time mm-hmm. Um, and and there, there might be something in that as well, that once one achieves a certain status, the expectation. Well, I can relate to that. I mean, we now sure. have uh, nine Chicken Soup for the Soul books in print, and each one that we do, everyone expects it to be as good as or better than the last one. Exactly. You know, my publisher and the, 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 certainly the audience that buys the books doesn't want them to be worse every time. 
And, uh, you know, we all know the, the, the sequels that get worse and worse. The Rocky movies are a good example of that. Of course. And so I think there is a huge pressure. And I, I think what often happens is, you know, everyone has moments where you're on. You're on a roll. You're in the groove. You know, your biorhythms are lined up. Who oh, knows yeah. what? Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the day you win the gold. And then you can't come out and do that all the time. The best baseball players, you know, don't hit a home run every time. Exactly. And yet people are there, you know, expecting you're supposed to do that and being disappointing when you don't and all that. So I think what the great professional, whether it's skaters or pro football players or whatever, is they have an image. There's a, there's a term we call high intention, low attachment, which means I go out with the highest intention to do my best, but I have a low attachment to it happening. Oh, I love that. And I, I think for that. me that integrated the Western, you know, go for it perfectionism with the Eastern, you know, accept life as it is quality because it was driving me crazy for a long time. I, I didn't want to make people more neurotic by giving them higher expectations, but I also knew I wanted to motivate and inspire people. And it was that formula of high intention, low attachment that um, really, you know, knocked it for me. Yes, and, and, and for me, it helps to know that there's a difference between striving for excellence and flawlessness, having to be perfect or flawless. You know? That's right. And uh, that's something, as a, a, as a child actress, that was uh, a very, very uh, damaging thing, you know, again, unconsciously done by the people around me. But how, you know, how, how does a four-year-old respond when adults say, there are people who make a living from this, and your mistakes are going to create hardships for all of these people around you. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a horrifying mental and emotional um, experience. Yeah, on a child, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 you know, it's been my lifelong work. You know, not only to get over that, but uh, but as as you do to to help others realize that. My gosh, you know, uh, there's we we can still strive for excellence. We must because I, I believe there's a mechanism inside of us that that wants that. But the idea of flawlessness is is way too too difficult. Way That's too right. Difficult. And the whole skating phenomenon is really it's based on you don't earn points. You get points taken away. Exactly. It's an ideal that exists in somebody's head. And then every time you do, you can hear them talking. You know, oh, he missed a double axle. Well, that's a quarter of a point off. Yeah. And you just know you're just constantly getting further and further away <sighs> from what's perfect. It's very, very tough. Oh, I know. And then in the second competition, Brian Boitano said, um, well, you know, this time I, I just uh, remembered that I'm supposed to go out there and have fun. Right. Although he didn't appear to be having fun. I mean, he said the words, but it was as though, um, I, I can certainly relate to this myself, the, the principle hadn't been totally integrated, but he was working on wanting it to be that way. Right. Right, I've seen, you know, what's really interesting to watch is you see these retired skaters that are now professionals, Mm -hmm. and they're not in competition, they're just doing a simple, you know, these uh, exhibition skating, and they go out there and they skate almost flawlessly, because they don't care, the pressure's off, and they just kind of let it flow, and when your mind gets in the way, uh, there was a great term in the um, movie Dune, uh, mind is the, uh, fear, fear is the mind killer. Mm-hmm. And when you're afraid of something bad happening, as opposed to just having fun, then you get in trouble. And uh, that, that'll stop us every time. Yeah. We will be back with more Positive Living and our special guest, Jack Canfield. Please stay tuned. Hi, 
I'm Leona Evans. We are back here on KVEC with Jack Canfield. This particular book that we are discussing out of the many wonderful ones that he has authored and co-authored is called Heart at Work, Stories and Strategies for Building Self-Esteem and Reawakening the Soul at Work. If any of you out there is feeling just uh, unfulfilled at work, uh, feeling that you'd like to bring some of that wonderful spirituality you learn about on Sundays into the workplace, this is the book to get. And as we are talking about with Jack Canfield, who is a, a self-esteem expert, it is really through discovering the worth within us that we're able to either create an environment for our employees that helps them regain their own self-esteem, or as an employee that we're able to um, spread the, the, the wonderful benevolence that we are so that it's really contagious. So, Jack, how do we separate high intention and low attachment. Usually if I have a high intention, I also have a high attachment to the outcome. Well, it, it's a matter of realizing that your self-worth and that your quality of life is not going to be adversely affected really at the core of who you are if things don't turn out the way you want them to. Even if I don't get the prize money, even if I don't get the job or I even do Even if you poor... don't get the prize money, the job, Mr. Right, whatever it is, that life is going to go on, and you have this. Nathaniel Brandon has a wonderful definition of, of self-esteem, mm-hmm. and he said it's it's the it's the experience that I have a right to be happy, mm-hmm. and that I have the inner ability or competence to handle whatever life hands me. Now, if I knew that if I lost my home, I could go out and and, and live and find another one and be fine, that I'll survive, then I would be willing to have my home be at risk, which then means I can be more of an entrepreneur. If I knew that I could survive you saying no to me if I asked you out to lunch, then I would be more willing to ask you. I'm more likely to get a yes. And if you did give me a no, I can survive that. The more I realize that, then the less I'm attached to how things turn out. We always, in our mind, it's like the end of the world. You know, when we see it in a teenager, like, well, if Johnny doesn't love me, my whole life is over. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, we go, oh, that's so silly. You'll forget Johnny. It'll be painful. But three months from now, you'll be in love with someone else. When you're in it, you think it's the end of the world. But Absolutely. once you get through it, and that's one of the nice things of getting older, you start to realize, hey, no matter what happens, I'll take care of it. And it, it gets lighter. So I think one thing is just literally taking that concept on that internally I can handle whatever shows up. And number two, knowing that up until now I didn't have the outcome. No matter what it is, if I ask you for lunch and you say no, I didn't have anyone to eat lunch with before I asked. I don't have anyone to eat lunch with after I asked. If I lose the proposal, I didn't have the proposal before I started. I don't have the proposal now. My life doesn't really get worse. It just kind of stays the same. Yeah. Um, internally, I can survive. There is a, um, a phrase that Maurice Nicole, who is a proponent of the work of Gurdjieff and Spensky, said, and, and I like to use that, uh, which is related to what you said. He said, this work, this spiritual work or work of self-awareness, is not to calm the storms in the sea, but it's to build a sturdy ship. That's right. You know, and that's really what we're doing um, here when, you know, have the high intention. Of course, we, we, we want to hone our skills. We want to give of ourselves. We want to do our best. <clears throat> but if we realize that what we have within us is greater, you know, again, to, to perfectly quote scripture, what we have within us is greater than what is in the world, then we know there'll be another opportunity. We know there'll be um, another chance. We can survive. We will survive. That's right. And also, I think that experience in life is not just to be successful. We get too caught up on 
this outer success. I think experience in life is to develop qualities within us, qualities like perseverance, uh, stamina, inner strength, trust, faith, love, etc. And those qualities can't be developed in the absence of obstacles, disappointments, frustrations, challenges, etc. I know. Isn't that too bad? (laughs) <laughs> really, <laughs> you know, but it's yes. that's a fact. Yes. And, you know, people will say, well, I prayed, I prayed to get this job or I prayed to get this opportunity and I blew it or I failed or I made a mistake and it didn't happen. And my feeling is, you know, and it's much easier, of course, to deal uh, objectively with it. You know, it's, it's harder to deal subjectively. But um, how do we know that the very act of that so-called mistake isn't the very thing that uh, that is empowering us with another skill or another ability right. um, that will create another opportunity that's even well, better. Garth Brooks has a wonderful song out. It's called Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. Oh. And it's about, you know, in his particular song, he's going to a high school reunion and he sees this girl that he just died to want to marry. And now she's, a, you know, an alcoholic and she's not all that nice and everything. And he, you know, and he goes into the refrain, thank God for unanswered prayers. But he goes on to talk about how in life, a lot of the things we, we want so desperately aren't really for our highest good. So whenever I pray, I say this or whatever is better for my, my soul's evolution. Yes. Because sometimes for me to be on the bestseller list feels good, but it might not be the best thing for the evolution of my consciousness. I'm, I might need to deal with a, a more traumatic situation to grow me. And, um, you know, we always tell people, if you want to be on the fast track to spiritual growth, get married, have children, start your own business. And the reason for that is all three of those things will bring up everything that aren't clear in you and have you the force to be look at them. Isn't that interesting? I wonder why. Is that why the, uh, the Orthodox Jews uh, told uh, people that they had to get married and have children in order to really understand the teachings? It's probably true, because it's very easy to be a, a monk in a monastery. Not much conflict to deal with. Exactly. Uh, not much pressure to have to deal with. And not that that's not a, p- a path for some people that's appropriate, but I think it's a much harder path to be married, have children, and live in the world and still maintain one's spiritual center and spiritual values. Um, there is uh, an article here um, that talks about, um, I've got it pinned down here, but uh, while I'm looking for it, I'm sure you know which one it is, about the, the uh, person who had the lady from India visit and um, this lady uh, continued to bless all the things that were happening in the course of the day. Do you remember that one? I do remember the story. Uh, I think it was called Reverence in the Workplace. Yes, exactly. And what it was about, a friend of ours who's a consultant uh, who, who gave us three different stories for the book, a guy named Jack Hawley, talks about having a house guest who was from India who literally had a greater sense of reverence for everything, um, and um, you know, when they put up a wreath on the a Christmas wreath on the door, you know, he'd go out there hanging on the door, and that's it. You know, and she would say, "Well, no, no, slow down. Like, really appreciate. Look at this beautiful wreath and all of it is it's made out of, and isn't it beautiful? And it's so green, and it's a symbol of life, and the beautiful berries and the leaves they exist together in harmony." And he said, "You know, after doing this to him, you know, like he would run in the door and slam it. And she'd say, "Wait, stop." slow down, grab the door, feel how it feels to open it and everything, that he realized that she didn't go to church on Sunday to have a sense of reverence. She had reverence every moment of life for everything and every person she came into touch with. And I've met people who really 
run their businesses that way. There's a guy up in Oregon who sells carrots, and he sells, sells them to restaurants as opposed to, like, putting them in the supermarkets. And every carrot is hand-washed, and then they're laid down between layers of tissue paper and put in these very beautiful boxes to be delivered to a restaurant. Now, you've seen the kind of boxes vegetables usually come in. Yes. And he has the largest restaurant carrot business up there because everybody wants that kind of loving attention paid to everything they interact with, and yet he is revering literally the paper, the carrot, the interaction, and uh, ultimately it, it, he feels good and it uh, goes to the bottom line as well. That is such an important. The Native Americans really have that as a, a, a as a foundation of their spirituality to just give thanks for everything. That's right. Uh, to revere life and even to what we were just talking about, even the mistakes or the so-called errors uh, that we think are taking us away from our path. If we have a chance to bless those, then we can see the value in them. That's right. You know, but it does take practice, doesn't it? It does. It takes reminding. I think, you know, a friend of mine who's a, a Catholic uh, monastic said to me once, he said, you know, the reason I live in a monastery is because everywhere I look, there's a reminder of what I want to be most important in my life. He said, I could be starting to think judgmentally, you know, thoughts about one of my other monks, and then I walk around the corner and there's Christ on the cross, or I see a brother in, in their uh, monastic outfit, and I see someone with the rosary beads, and each of those things reminds me of who I am and what I know. And I always say, people always say their environment controls them. I say, you control your environment. How have you designed your workspace? Is it something that when you walk into it, you simply become centered and relaxed? Or is it a place you can't stand to be and you want to get away because it's so unesthetic and overwhelming and all of that? So literally, we have a choice about how we create the environment, which then affects us. Yes, indeed, and and the feng shui. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's correct. The um, uh, ancient Chinese art of arranging furniture and arranging houses uh, to the point where they give us the optimum uh, what uh, mood or or uh, opportunity. Alignment of energy, I think, would be the way they would say it. Yes. Uh, and I just had someone do a feng shui on my office. It was very. I didn't ask for it. They came to a party and said, "Would you like me to?" And I said, "Sure." I'm always the first person if there's a plumber. I'll put my hand out. You know, oh, sure. Tell yeah. me about me, you know. But anyway, she um, came in and said, I, I have, my office has a bathroom off it. And she said, you have to either remove that or keep the door closed at all times. She says, because you have val- valuable energy that's literally like just being sucked down the toilet, you know. Oh, my gosh. Yes. It was an interesting metaphor, but she said, you know, you have to be careful with those things. So she had me reorient my desk a little bit and everything. And I have to admit, I feel a little more centered in my office, and, and, and who knows, that may be it. Well, I, I did the same thing with my office after I saw uh, something on Dateline NBC, I think. I, you know, uh-huh. I, I got a book and, and did the whole thing. I feel much better, too, and I, 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 it's aesthetically more pleasing. You know, some of the things uh, like uh, get your desk facing the door or, or in the corner, those things are, are aesthetically more pleasing. And so, uh, But as you say, anything that we do that, that, that can put ourselves into it, that can put love into it, I hope we have enough time would you please read, if you if you will, page 36, Work is Love Made Visible by Khalil Gibran. Sure, I'd be glad So to. beautiful. Khalil, who's a wonderful um, uh, poet, says, And what is it to work with love? It is to weave the cloth with threads drawn from your heart, even as if your beloved were to wear that cloth. It is to build a house with affection, even as if your beloved were to dwell in that house. It is to sow seeds with tenderness and reap the harvest with joy, even as if your beloved were to eat the fruit. 
It is to charge all things you fashion with the breath of your own spirit and to know that all the blessed dead are standing about you and watching. Work is love made visible. And if you cannot work with love but only with distaste, it is better that you should leave your work and sit at the gate of the temple and take alms of those who work with joy. For if you bake bread with indifference, you bake a bitter bread that feeds but half a man's hunger. And if you grudge the crushing of the grapes, your grudge distills a poison in the wine. And if you sing though as angels and love not the singing, you muffle men's ears to the voices of the day and the voices of the night. Wow. To work with love. Work is love made visible. And so what we need to do is remember who we are, that we were created with talents and gifts that only we can express in, in our own unique way. Um, we have the power to change our environment by changing the way we perceive it. We can empower other people uh, through a sense of our own inner security and, and an appreciation for them, which will come back to us many, many times over. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. And so, friends, I would like to ask you uh, to take a look at this book, Heart at Work, to buy it, to keep it by your bedside. It's filled with many, many wonderful stories of inspiration. Jack, I would like to thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest on Positive Living. My pleasure, Leona. Would you stay on the line for just a moment? After sure. we sign off, I'd like to chat with you for a second. Okay. Friends, remember who you are. You are each a special and wonderful and beautiful being of light. Let your light shine. Next week on Positive Living, we will have more tools for self-awareness and self-esteem. And so have a wonderful, wonderful week. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening to the Get Off Your Affirmation podcast. This second half of the interview was so interesting to me, and I really loved the Khalil Gibran poem. I've never heard it before, but it's something I'll definitely come back to a lot in the future. Please get in touch with us on our website, getoffyouraffirmation.com, or on our Facebook page. We look forward to hearing from you. Have a wonderful week. You deserve it.